If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Many might assume that Britain's grand Georgian houses were the product of a man's world. However, as Amy Boyington reveals, this was far from the truth. Women acted as patrons, liaised with contractors, and even designed their homes with an expert hand. Lauren Good caught up with Amy to uncover the fascinating roles that women played in Georgian architecture, some of which have been long forgotten. Hi Amy, thank you so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast today. No problem, delighted to be here. So let's hit the ground running. Why is the idea that Georgian architecture was a world of men a myth? Well, I think because when you think about country houses from the Georgian period, so think about Holcomb Hall in Norfolk or Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire, they are, you know, they were built by men, by quite, you know, wealthy landowning men, and they commissioned male architects. And so as a result of this, the perception has sort of carried on throughout the centuries that it was only really men who could afford to do this and who actually were interested in architecture. And we should caveat this with the fact that these women were often very wealthy, but you don't think all women in this industry might have been. Could you please explain why? Yes, no, of course. So yeah, on the whole, most of these women were elite, they were wealthy, they were well-connected, and probably from the aristocracy. 
But there are, you know, some exceptions to the rule. So there's a really fascinating category of women who were courtesans and mistresses during the 18th century. And these women who were beautiful women who attracted, I guess, you know, very wealthy lovers were able then to build or sort of modernise houses in the city and really use it as their calling card. And there's plenty of examples of really sort of outgoing and pretty ballsy women from that period. And you discuss wealthy women acting as patrons and designing their own homes. What examples do we have of these plans coming to fruition? So there's quite a few. So it's tricky when we're looking at women and what they were involved with architecture because a lot of their buildings were paid for by their husbands. If they're married, their sort of input has been subsumed by their husbands and hidden. So you have to really delve deeper. But by looking at their correspondence, we can see that women were super interested in architecture and were often in charge of building new houses or modernising existing ones. And an example I can give is a woman called Jemima York, and she was Marchioness Grey. She inherited Rest Park in Bedfordshire. So the house that's there today is actually a house that was built by her grandson. But the house that she was involved with was a rambling old mansion that she'd inherited from her grandfather. And she was involved with modernising it. She built a beautiful dining room with a huge bow window. And then that wasn't enough. So then she built a drawing room next to it with bedchambers above it. And these are really fashionable rooms. She's trying to update her rambling old ancestral home. And yet, when you look at the records that, you know, all of the payments, they were attributed to her husband because he was in charge of the finances. But in her correspondence, we see that she was involved and she talks about walking around and visiting her workmen to make sure that it was all going smoothly. And how common was it for women to have enough autonomy to liaise with contractors and architects like you've just said there? I think so it depends so it, for married women it really depends on how successful their marriage was like was it a marriage of equals kind of thing did they love each other did the husband respect her enough to allow her to get on with it and in many examples this was the case you know people married often for love sometimes it was arranged but they respected one another and wanted to create a comfortable home for them both to live in and their families but of course there are other examples in which it was an arranged marriage and the husband could be quite a, a brute, a tyrant, in which case the wife didn't have any say in the building at all. And then there were other examples of wealthy women. So I've talked about the courtesans. They had complete autonomy. But another category of women, heiresses. So women who didn't marry but inherited their family estates, they, of course, had full say in what they wanted to do with their country houses and townhouses. And you've mentioned that it was women's husbands who often financed these projects. But do we have any examples of women themselves managing the finances? Yes, we do. So widowed women actually were generally in charge of their own finances. So once their husband died, they, of course, had their own autonomy. They had their own money. So there's a lady called Moni Harvey and she was Baroness Harvey. And she was actually a courtier at the court of Caroline of Ansbach. And later on, she, when she was widowed, she finally had her own autonomy and she decided that she was going to build herself a townhouse in St. James's Place in London. And she employed Henry Flickcroft, who was a famous architect of the time. 
and she built herself a huge townhouse. And it was, it's always described in the French style. And she was quite a Francophile. So I think that she liked the Rococo taste. And, you know, she had beautiful interiors. She insisted on having these soirees where everybody speak in French and have French food. So I think she must have been quite fun. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale! Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. And did you find any cases of male architects resisting the decisions of these women? Yes. So there's quite a famous example. So if we think of Blenheim Palace, it was a huge palace for First Duke of Marlborough. But and he had employed Sir John Vanbrugh so, to build this huge Baroque house. But because the Duke was often at war on the continent, fighting the Spanish War succession, the decision-making and the day-to-day decisions actually fell to his wife, Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, who was, she's a famous woman. She was a favourite of Queen Anne, and she really knew what she wanted when it came to architecture. So she and Vanbrugh butted heads all the time because he wanted to build this huge, amazing palace, but she was always more practical and she was concerned with the extravagance and where is the money going to come from to actually pay for that extra wing or that extra portico. And so as a result, they often had fights. And then in the end, he actually sensationally decided that he was just going to quit. And he, he writes this huge letter saying, this is just, I cannot bear it anymore. I have to leave. So it's very sensational. And you've discussed Mary Hervey, but there was another individual, Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, who also took an interest in architecture. How did she engage with it? Yes, yeah, so she she was actually really interested in architecture, in drawing, uh, architectural drawing. So she and her husband actually took architectural drawing lessons from Sir William Chamber. And then later she had lessons in perspective drawing. And she even had her own architect's protractor. So you can imagine her like sitting next to her husband, George III, and then, you know, measuring buildings and drawing like to scale. And she must have designed some buildings. But of course, we don't have any actual surviving drawings, unfortunately, anymore. But she was super interested in drawing. She actually did build some garden buildings in one of the palace gardens. And that seems to have been a trend for many of the Georgian queens. And are there any other examples of women taking this training, I suppose? You said that it was basically impossible for women to become professional architects. Yeah, so 
So generally during this period, women could not be professional architects. Like if they had education, it was just for them to have an accomplishment. It wasn't to actually go out and earn money because they, you know, they couldn't because they were that sort of husband's property. If anyone's going to make the money, it's going to be the husband. So women did engage in architectural drawing and sketching. And the only way that they could really sort of utilize this was to be an amateur architect. So they were never going to get any money from it, but they could help design houses for their family members or for themselves. There was a lady in Ireland called Anna Maria Dawson, and she was the daughter of Blaney Townley Balfour. And she and her brother were really interested in classical architecture. And they employed an architect called Francis Johnson. And she was so involved with the designing of this building that there are plans that have been recently reattributed to her. So plans of each of the floors and she annotates them what the rooms are going to be and where the water supplies are, where the staircases are. So she was really involved and she was a talented amateur architect. And so she was helping her brother and sort of liaising with their paid architect in order to create this amazing neoclassical house which still stands today, which I think is fantastic. Fantastic. But there's also another example, also in Ireland, where there's this lady called Countess Charleville, and she loved neo-Gothic architectures. And she and the same architect, Francis Johnson, designed a almost Gothic castle. And this castle is called Charleville Castle. And the reason why we know that she was involved with it, because there was a man called Judge Robert Day, who in 1812 was going to the house and he said that the castle does great credit to the taste and munificence of the noble owner, or rather her ladyship, who I understand projected the whole under the auspices of Johnson. So that just indicates that she was liaising with this architect the whole time to create the marital home, to create a house for her and her husband, which I think is fantastic. And do we have any other examples of these really detailed drawings? You discussed that she was looking into water supplies there. Are there any other examples of this? This is the thing. So finding drawings that are by women is actually gold dust. So I've had to scour so many archives looking for examples of women actually having drawn these. And I can't say I've found a great deal, but I'm sure they're out there. But one thing that I would like to mention is that those drawings I was just talking about were actually attributed to the husband. And so there must be loads of other drawings out there that are attributed to the husband because he's the one who commissioned or paid for the building, but might have actually been in his wife's or daughter's or mother's hands. And it's just by going and actually comparing the handwriting and going right down to the detail that we can find that kind of thing. But having said that, so remember I, I talked about Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough. Well, later on, she decided to build for herself a suburban villa. So a villa is a house that's sort of about an hour's well, ride from the centre of the city where women and men obviously could escape the hustle and bustle of the city and be in a sort of Arcadian, delightful scene. And so she decided to build for herself a house in Wimbledon and it was overlooking Wimbledon Common it was in the Palladian style and she and her favourite granddaughter who is Lady Di Lady Diana Spencer she later became the Duchess of Bedford but they together granddaughter and grandmother loved architecture and there is a plan in her granddaughter's hand so I think she was in her late teens when she drew it 
And it's incredibly detailed to the point where the Duchess has actually annotated it. And the things that she's annotated include the dining room is going to be on the east side so that when they're eating in the evening, they don't have the sun shining on them and making it too hot and stuffy. And so practicalities like that were very important to the Duchess and, of course, other women because they were thinking about how the spaces were going to be used and how people were going to enjoy it properly. And from these commissions that you've researched, what are some of the most luxurious examples? Right. So I would say thinking about townhouses. So in 18th century, the townhouse was sort of the way for families to showcase their taste because not everybody could be bothered to travel to their country seats. So the townhouses had to be incredibly luxurious. They often displayed their most expensive and exquisite art collections and art pieces. And it was almost like a gallery. So a lot of the women that I've looked at, especially these widows who finally had their own, you know, their own money that they could control, they spent so much money on their townhouses. And there are loads of examples. So Firstly, there's a lady called Elizabeth Montague. She's incredibly famous. She was a blue stocking woman. So she was a woman of letters and she liked to host these dinner parties where people would come and they would discuss politics and literature, the arts, like all of these really fun topics. And it was all to, all to do with intellectualism and I suppose the opposite of drinking and gambling and the other sort of pursuits that people liked at the time. She decided to build for herself a townhouse in Portman Square. Unfortunately, it was demolished in the Second World War and Blitz. But we do have drawings because it was a fantastic neoclassical house. So neoclassicism was incredibly fashionable during the 18th century. And she hired the most important architects of the time. And her house was huge. And she had these huge, beautiful rooms that was full of gilding and expensive materials and beautiful sort of paintings on the ceilings and the furniture suites were exquisite and she was just so interested in every single detail of the house to the point where it actually took a very long time for the house to come to its final fruition. So she had the royal family come over, so she had Queen Charlotte pop over with some of her daughters to come and see it as the progress was going because it was so fascinating. And she even created what they called a feather room where she had this amazing sort of room in which there was feather wall hangings. And it's very hard to imagine how it'd be now, but it was apparently like a mosaic of feathers. And this is what Queen Charlotte came to see because it was such an interesting interior design option. And this is one of the things that Elizabeth Montague is famous for. She's famous for her letters, but she was such an interior designer. Like today, she would have an amazing business going because she was just constantly inventive and people loved her for it. And we've talked a lot about houses, but women's involvement in architecture wasn't just constricted to buildings. You give examples in your book of them contributing to landscape architecture. Could you please tell our listeners what some of these examples were? Yes, of course. So, of course, women had gardens and they had estates. So as well as modernising or building country houses, and they often looked to the wider estate because the whole thing represented what they were about and it was a reflection of them and their family. So 
there are different categories which I'll go through. So the first category are sort of charitable builds. So a lot of women built charitable schools. They built almshouses for poor people or retired people to live in. And they did this, you know, to sort of show their bountifulness, their munificence. And the idea was that they were sort of, I suppose, retrenching their impact on the local community. And a lot of these still exist today. So for example, at Holcomb Hall in Norfolk, which I mentioned before, as you go through the North Gate, on either side, there were these cottage-like almshouses, which were built for three poor men and three poor women from the estate. And they were built by Lady Lester. So she had built this after her son had tragically died. She and Lord Lester, they had built Holcomb Hall, this huge palladian house in Norfolk. And they were wanting to obviously leave it to a child. But unfortunately, their only child that had survived adulthood died in his 30s from alcohol poisoning. So once he died, I think that Lady Lester wanted to sort of memorialise herself in a way because the house was her very much her husband's. And so she built these almshouses because that was a way that a woman could actually be involved in architecture, obviously, because women were able to be involved with church architecture and also charitable builds, because as the lady of the manor, that was something that's traditionally always been involved with them. And so she built these houses, and she puts these inscriptions at the end saying that she built it with her own money that had been given to her from her father, but also some of her own money. And she wanted it to almost be like her legacy on the estate, which I think was pretty impressive. And then she also later on, when she was a widow, she completely restored the church on the estate. So there's a church of St. Wisburga. And in the 1760s, she records it in a stained glass window saying that she paid £1,000 for the complete restoration of this church. And so to this day, that stained glass window is there and we know that Lady Lester was involved. So there are other examples of charitable bills, so schools were another one. Women on the estate were expected to be sort of charitable and think about the people on the estate. And so by building schools, they could help those the children of the estate whilst also engaging in architectural patronage. So sometimes they chose Gothic styles or classical styles, whatever they thought was fashionable at the time. But then if we look at the gardens, the gardens are amazing. So the gardens are also another area that women could really get involved with architecture because garden architecture, so I'm talking about temples or bridges or grottos, all of these different types of small garden structures were perfectly acceptable for women to be involved with because they were small, so they didn't cost too much money. They could be built fairly quickly. But women loved to get involved because it allowed them to really express themselves. So grottos, for example, are such a phenomenon during the 18th century. Women loved to create little, these like dark and dingy grottos, but filled with beautiful shells that had been collected from around the world. And there are examples, for example, at Goodwood House in Sussex, there's a beautiful grotto there that had been created by the Duchess of Richmond and her daughters as a pastime, but also as an expression of their artistic style. So yes, women have been involved with all, all types of buildings if they were able to do so. And when people visit these gardens, there's usually, as you mentioned, temples inspired by Rome and Greece. How would women have received this inspiration? Would that have been from travel? 
So women did travel. During the 18th century, wealthy men went on their grand tours around Europe where they ended up in Rome and they studied and looked at ancient architecture. Women had less opportunity to do that. And so they had to rely on architectural treaties, such as Andrea Palladio's Four Books of Architecture. And this is four books that basically have lots of drawings that have been taken from ancient examples in Italy or Greece or Rome. And so these were then brought back to Britain and women were able to digest them and see what was the original style like from the ancient Roman times and then they could pick elements from that and include it in their temples or in their houses or things like that. And when would women get to become professional architects? It took women a really long time to actually become professional architects men actually really guarded their professions quite stoutly right until the 20th century. So although during the Victorian period there are more examples of women sort of practicing professionally, they generally did this if they were part of their family's firm. So, you know, they they were able to work with their fathers or their brothers. And even then, they generally were only allowed to design domestic architecture, so houses, because they were considered, you know, that's like the domestic sphere appropriate for women. But then as we went into the 20th century, women became to, you know, they wanted to be paid and be able to actually study architecture at the architectural schools, such as the Architectural Association in London. And so it really was only at the sort of turn of the 20th century where women properly started to be able to study professionally and then practice professionally. But it was a really, really long battle. And finally, Amy, without women's involvement, how different do you think the architecture from this period would be? I think it would be very different because women had this real knack of being able to think ahead about how a building would be used. So a lot of the women that I've looked at, when they've been writing to their friends, they're saying, well, that window really should be a bit lower so that we can look out of it when we're sat down at dinner. Or, you know, there should be at least two fireplaces in this particular room or gallery. Otherwise, it's going to be absolutely freezing. So women seem to have a really good practical knowledge of architecture. And as well as that, they were amazing at aesthetic design. They knew what was fashionable. And many of the buildings that I've looked at and many of the trends and aesthetics established during this era were actually pioneered by women. So just very briefly, there's this amazing woman called Teresa Cornelis, who was an Italian-born opera singer who came to the UK with a married clergyman. And then she sort of was his mistress. And she decided that she wanted to create a name for herself. So initially, she tried to be an opera singer, didn't do so well. And so she decided that she wanted to create subscription balls where the wealthy could pay for a ticket to go to one of her lavish balls or parties. And so in order to do this, she needed a fantastic house. So she basically took the lease of Carlisle House in Soho Square. And she had such an eye for interior design because every room was almost in a different aesthetic. So there was a Chinese room, there was a Gothic grotto, there were there's a Chinese bridge somewhere, a huge ballroom with lavish chandeliers. And she was so interested in architecture that every season she redid another room and redid another room so that it constantly was interesting to her patrons who constantly bought tickets to come so she made a lot of money this is an example of what I'm saying about how women were so sort of ingenious with their 
interior decoration and their aesthetic design. And I think a lot of them sort of pioneered their way. And then men and architects followed them and thought, wow, if she's done it this beautifully, we want a room in that style as well. And this was, you know, regularly talked about at the time. That was Amy Boyington, Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage and author of Hidden Patrons, Women and Architecture in Georgian Britain, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Hardin.